Psalm 88, a song, a psalm of the sons of Korah to the choir master, according to Mahalath Leonath, a masco of Heman the Ezraite. O Lord, God of my salvation, I cry out day and night before you. Let my prayer come before you. Incline your ear to my cry. For my soul is full of troubles, and my life draws near to Sheol. I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am a man who has no strength, like one set loose among the dead, like the slain that lie in the grave, like those whom you remember no more, for they are cut off from your hand. You have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all your waves. Selah. You have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. I am shut in so that I cannot escape. My eye grows dim through sorrow. Every day I call upon you, O Lord. I spread out my hands to you. Do you work wonders for the dead? Do the departed rise up to praise you? Selah. Is your steadfast love declared in the grave, or your faithfulness in Abaddon? Are your wonders known in the darkness, or your righteousness in the land of forgetfulness? But I, O Lord, cry to you. In the morning my prayer comes before you. O Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? Afflicted and close to death from my youth up, I suffer your terrors. I am helpless. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. They surround me like a flood all day long. They close in on me together. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. Good morning, everybody. Thank you, Nicole, for the reading, <laughs> as usual, um, and the band for that song and songs. Uh, well, as um, I think Michael mentioned, um, and as Nicole read, uh, as you probably guessed, we're going to be looking at Psalm 88 today in the book of Psalms. If you want to turn there in your Bibles, feel free. We'll have most of the passages, at least the key parts that I want to look at today on screen too, so you can feel free to follow along there. And I think it's all on your sermon insert in like seven-point font, if you, if you can read that small. I wanted to get it all in there, um, so, uh, but it's all there. Um, but a couple uh, words on the Psalms quick. Um, if you've been around Hiawatha a little while, you know I like to kind of sprinkle the preaching calendar a little bit with Psalms here, uh, here and there throughout the year. Um, I think it's a little bit much maybe to preach the whole book um, consecutively. We'd be in it for about three years, and that would be, be a little bit a little bit psalm-heavy. Um, but with that said, the Psalms is such a great book, and it's in the Bible for a reason. Um, it's poetic, and so in that sense, it's unique uh, to interpret. Um, but I think for a lot of people, uh, even people aren't Christians yet, uh, the Psalms are known, uh, maybe because they're quoted a lot or referenced a lot or in songs or, uh, or what have you. Um, but for a lot of people, I think they're very accessible still. For Old Testament scripture, um, there's a lot of Old Testament passages and books and 
verses in, the, in that part of the Bible that are pretty hard to understand or get through, but the Psalms are kind of accessible. We can read that and think, I've been through that. Uh, or we can, we can relate with the psalmist's problem or what he's praying um, or um, at least understand what he's saying because it's a little bit less abstract and uh, it's poetry and pretty straightforward. It's about worship and prayer, and they literally, literally are prayers and hymns that were sung uh, at various times throughout uh, Israel's history. So um, they're accessible, I think, but on another level, they're paradoxically difficult to interpret because um, kind of that balance there because especially as we ask the big question, what do these things mean for us? Uh, they're psalms, they're poetry, and one let's, let's level we can access them, but um, on another level, what do they mean for us as Christians in the 21st century, and how do we apply them to church life? Uh, we might be able to, to empathize with the psalmist on some level, but what does that really mean? And, and how does it fit in with the greater story of Scripture as well? Um, that can be the more difficult question sometimes to face. And so we've done that in the past, not just with the psalms, of course, but all of Scripture, but we have with the psalms too, and we're going to do that today as well. Uh, a couple of sides on Psalm 88 in particular. Psalm 88 is considered by some the darkest corner of the book of Psalms, and by some also, the darkest corner of the whole Bible. And um, people say this because it's due to the fact that there seems to be little, if any, resolution in the psalm itself. Uh, it's common to come across psalms that uh, maybe pose a problem, or the psalmist has some distress, maybe in the earlier parts of the psalm, but then at the end there's some clear resolution, uh, some uh, declarative statement on God's uh, promise or his salvation or his victory or something, uh, but in this psalm, that doesn't happen. <laughs> there's, there's just no resolution. He starts off in the psalm by saying that God is my God of salvation, and he's, it's clearly he's praying to this God and depending on some level on this God, but the psalm actually ends with the statement, my companions have become darkness. And darkness is literally the last Hebrew word in the psalm. So literally, darkness has the final word in this psalm, and it just ends. <laughs> so um, it's a dark one, probably the darkest one uh, in the book of Psalms and one of the darker corners again, as many have said, in the Bible. And so what I want to do today, and I've done this with Psalms in the past, if you've been here for uh, the Psalms before, um, I want to preach this Psalm from two perspectives. The human perspective, we're looking at this as though it were kind of a prayer of ours, and kind of talked a little bit about that uh, before, but also look um, at this Psalm from a divine perspective. And I'll explain a little bit more what that means as we get to it, uh, but we'll start with the human perspective, a little bit more of the obvious perspective on Psalms, or maybe the way that Many of you are used to uh, approaching the Psalms, then we'll kind of move on to more of the prophetic role it, play, it takes uh, in the greater story of Scripture after that. Um, but, so like I said, when I'm calling this uh, sermon, Your Wrath Has Swept Over Me, which, uh, as you heard Nicole read, is directly from the Psalm, but one of the key phrases, I think, in the Psalm. We'll get to that in a little bit. Um, so, as dark and as hopeless as a Psalm like this is, um, reading a darker Psalm like it uh, from a human perspective or from like an existential perspective can be strangely comforting uh, for us, especially as people of God, especially when we're going through similar things. To know that God's people go through suffering and to read someone who is tremendously suffering, if you really think about this and let these words sink in, this guy is at the end of his rope big time. Uh, he uses words like helpless and says about God, your wrath has swept over me. This is an Israelite. This is someone in covenant with God in the Old Testament, but just saying, your wrath has swept over me. You're silent. You have caused my friends to shun me as well. I'm totally alone. The only friends I have in the world are darkness. And that's how the psalm ends. But to know that God's people go through stuff like that, uh, maybe not quite to that degree, some of you, uh, but for some of you, you have, you can still look at that psalm and say, I feel like I've been through that. Verse 3 says, my soul is full of troubles, and so is ours, a lot <laughs> in life. It's that kind of idea. And it leads us to pray with the psalmist. Uh, to pray that prayer with him, maybe into our circumstance. Or to know that sometimes prayers seem to go unanswered for the people of God. 
God always answers prayers, even if it's a no or a wait. But to have this example, this story, this historical example of someone who had a really long season of suffering, and it didn't appear, for him at least, didn't appear that God was answering at all, like God had turned his face away. To have an example of that um, can also be comforting as well. Verse 13 says, But I, O Lord, cry to you, yet quickly shifts to, in verse 14, Why do you hide your face from me? And that leads me into this third thing, which I think is most helpful in the psalm, is to have an example of a worshiper. Remember, this is someone who not just believes in God, but he's in covenant with the right God, the only God, the God of the universe, God of all creation, the God of the Bible. An example of a worshiper who's suffering deeply, he says in verse 15, I'm, I'm totally helpless. I have no help. There's no help out there for me. Yet still calls on the name of the Lord every day, it says. And you have these cool things throughout the psalm, which says, in the morning I cried out to you, uh, at noontime, in the evening I cried out to you, even every day I cried out to you repeatedly. And so there's this cool juxtaposition, I think, in the psalm of suffering tremendously and yet calling out to God continually at the same time. And I think that's very spiritually attractive a lot of times for us as Christians. When we do suffer, we had this example uh, to follow in it. It reminded me of, of Job, if you know the story of Job in the Old Testament, who was another individual that suffered tremendously. And I won't go into all of his story today, but lost a lot of his family members. He was stricken with a, a serious illness uh, for a very long time. Um, and uh, suffered incredibly. It's the, one of the, it's the big context of the whole book. Um, but it says in Job 122, as he begins to suffer, Job says, The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And so in the midst of his suffering, he says, Blessed be God, because the Lord gives, but the Lord also has authority, and he's always right when he takes away things as well. I'm going to praise him. I'm going to bless his name in the midst of my suffering. Sounds very much like uh, the psalmist here. Maybe a little bit step further in terms of worship, but you definitely do see this instance in Psalm 88 where God, or where the psalmist says, God is the God of my salvation. And that probably implies that he's been saved before. Not just believes in God, but God has shown up in my life and he's saved me on different levels. I'm going to call upon that God and trust him for my present uh, experience as well in the midst of this suffering. So on a human level then, on this first perspective that we approach, the more, this kind of more obvious entry point, into the psalm, and, and one that we're more used to taking. Seeing the psalmist as a picture of us, if there's anything to glean from this psalm at all, I think on that level, it's pray like he does amidst distress. There's nothing wrong with opening your Bible to a psalm like this, maybe in particular Psalm 88, and using it devotionally, using it as an example uh, to pray through, to remind us of many things, the distress of sin. I was thinking this past week, this goes back to our uh, series in Ecclesiastes, if you guys were here for that. If you weren't, we just finished a whole book, uh, or whole series in the book of Ecclesiastes and talked a ton about that. How it can be a really cool, strong, important, devotional, sacramental thing to just see how messed up the world is. In our own life, or just opening your window and looking out the window and seeing how messed up the world is. That can be a true ingredient to true worship. Um, because it draws us to a remedy. It draws us to God. It, it makes us, like this guy calls out in Psalm 88, God of my salvation, deliver me. I'm as good as dead, but deliver me from this somehow. Um, so it, it, it can remind us of these types of things, like the fallness of the world, the darkness of the world, the death that it brings into our lives, and ultimately or subsequently, the hope of Jesus, who is the God of salvation uh, in a greater biblical sense. Then maybe we could read uh, the, the next verse, Psalm 89.1, the first verse of the uh, next psalm, which says, I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever. It's amazing how these things are set next to each other in the Psalms. And a little bit of tidbit there, of uh, a little pointer for how you read the Psalms in the future, for those of you who do, I encourage you to. 
Um, but the Psalms are a unity. The Psalms were not thrown together randomly, uh, and they're not uh, kind of just each, um, you know, they're not each uh, under themselves. They relate to their surroundings. They tell a story, and there's thematic threads that weave through them. Um, there's things like when you open up the Psalms and read the first two books, and, or the first maybe 25 books, you get to the end of the, of the Psalter, and you get these themes that are kind of resolved a bit, or they kind of uh, take on a different, a little bit different face. So when you read the Psalms, read the Psalm before it, read the Psalm after it, and you might see a question in the Psalm that you're reading that's answered in the Psalm right after it. And so they, they do relate a lot. Or maybe a group of six psalms brings up the same theme and kind of unpacks it from different angles. Happens a lot in the psalms, and that's how, we're intent, that's how we're supposed to read it. They never stand alone. Not only do they relate to each other, but they relate to the greater story of Scripture as well. So I think in this case, we have darkness in Psalm 88 that's not resolved, but Psalm 89.1 does kind of resolve it. You have a praise that just says, I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever. So again, Nothing wrong with opening our book and saying from a human perspective, I go through stuff like this, or I am going through stuff like this, or I will go through stuff like this, and praying accordingly. Uh, and maybe getting to Psalm 89 and being reminded of the fallenness of the world, but then also being reminded that there, there is remedy biblically, that Jesus, who's going to come into the world a thousand years later from this vantage point in biblical history, uh, to bring resolution and to put away the darkness forever by dying on the cross for our sins and freeing us from that kind of darkness companionship that uh, we see in Psalm 88. So um, that's the first perspective, uh, the perspective that's more of that human, uh, human perspective, more obvious entry point to the psalm. But with all that said, I think there's much more going on in this psalm than a description of an intense prayer of suffering or a prescription of how to pray in such circumstances. I think in this psalm, or any psalm for that matter, there's a greater divine perspective on it and on the whole of biblical history, the whole of redemptive history, something that helps us see Christ from afar, and specifically in Psalm 88, a depiction of his sufferings. And something in particular, I think, that happened on the cross when he died for our sins that we may not normally think about. Uh, but before we go into that, some of those details, which we will, uh, I want to talk or make a couple more comments on this because for some of you this is brand new. Uh, in a broader sense, it's really important to know that the Psalms, in general, refer to things beyond us much more than they refer to us. I want to make sure that's clear. In general, in a broad sweeping sense, the Psalms much more refer to things beyond us than they do to us directly. It can be tempting to read only our own experiences into the Psalms, and that's not bad unnecessarily. I wanted to start the way I did by talking about the human perspective because I think that's an okay way to approach the Psalms, but it's not the main way. It's not the main point. Um, in fact, every time the Psalms are quoted or alluded to in the New Testament, and it's an important thing to do sometimes when we're reading the Old Testament, is to see uh, where in the New Testament is this book quoted or this concept quoted? And how do they handle something like this? And use that as an example for ourselves to approach the Psalms with. Every time the Psalms are quoted or alluded to in the New Testament, the New Testament authors use them to tell us something about Jesus, the gospel, or another New Testament principle or occurrence like faith or forgiveness or spiritual gifts or the church. Super important to understand that. There is no exception. Every Every, every time they're quoted in the New Testament, the authors use it, use the psalm to tell us something about Jesus, his gospel, or some kind of New Testament occurrence that Jesus brings into history, like the church or the church's experience of salvation or spiritual gifts or the principle of living by faith, not by works, or something like that. Jesus himself in Luke 24, 44 to 45, says, these are my words, this is after his resurrection, he says, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. 
And then Luke adds after that, then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, as if to say, Jesus enabled them at that point to see where he was and where his sufferings were in the Psalms, whereas they couldn't see it before, as if a veil was covering their face. So some would say uh, at this point, uh, and maybe uh, some of you have heard this, uh, but some would say that surely no one can deny Luke 24, that Jesus is in the Psalms, but he's only in a handful of messianic Psalms or Psalms that explicitly predict his coming or his suffering on some level. The other books, or the other Psalms, I should say, in the book uh, don't refer to him. Um, And I and many others would disagree with that. I think all 150 Psalms are messianic. Some more explicitly than others, but all 150 point us to him poetically, prophetically, and they anticipate what he's going to do for us ultimately on the cross and bringing salvation into the world. I think Psalm 88 is one of these more implicitly messianic Psalms. Um, And again, there's certainly Psalms that do it more explicitly. I don't think it's wrong to say, uh, to kind of lump together 25 of the Psalms and say these are messianic because they are more explicitly messianic or they're more explicitly telling us about Jesus. Um, but I think it's also helpful uh, to say there, the rest of the Psalms do it in an implicit manner and to mine for the gold that is Christ in those Psalms in the spirit of and in, in the way that the New Testament authors do many times. And so I think Psalm 88, though never quoted in the New Testament, is alluded to all over the place. And we'll get to some of those things here in a second. So the author's prayer then in Psalm 88, though very real, very personal, this guy really lived, who wrote the Psalm, and he really experienced these things. So it's real and personal and historical It was also a shadow of a later reality or a prayer fulfilled by Jesus and his sufferings on the cross. So, as we go back a second time then and look at some of these themes that come up in the psalm, we see that, one, God has been active in causing the distressing situation of the psalmist. It's very clear in the psalm. In verses 6 and 7 it says, You have put me, speaking to God, you have put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy on me, and you overwhelm me with all of your waves. In verses 15 and 16, it says, Afflicted and close to death from my youth up, I suffer your terrors. I am helpless. Your wrath has swept over me. Your dreadful assaults destroy me. And it also says, God has been silent. Uh, One of the major themes of the psalm. In verse 14, it says, O Lord, why do you cast my soul away? Why do you hide your face from me? And then thirdly, it's clear in the psalm that God has caused the psalmist's friends also to shun him. In verse 8 it says, You have caused my companions to shun me. You have made me a horror to them. You have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. In verse 18, my companions have become darkness. So in a few words, if we had to summarize what's going on, what the psalmist is going through in the psalm, he's essentially going through distress, silence, and abandonment and wrath. He's facing all of those things at high levels. And it's very clear that the psalmist is thoroughly forsaken, thoroughly forsaken by his friends, but even by God as well. Forsaken and abandoned and distressed, yet praying earnestly to God for deliverance at the same time. So as we take these kind of major themes that are going on in the psalm and fast forward them a bit in the New Testament, we see in the New Testament that Jesus fulfills all of these things at the highest level spiritually on the cross especially, when he died for our sins. So it's especially, it's, also, it's, it's in his person, it's in his work, it's especially the work of the cross, though, that we see these things primarily fulfilled. In Hebrews 5, 7, uh, one of the places that starts to come up in the New Testament, it says, speaking of Jesus, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications 
with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, like the psalmist cried out for deliverance from his impending death, and he was heard because of his reverence. In his early ministry, he says in Luke 12, 50, I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Speaking about his death here. I have a baptism to go through, a spiritual one. He's talking about his death. I am greatly, greatly distressed until it occurs. This is actually earlier in his ministry, before Gethsemane when he's praying and uh, his sweat turns into drops of blood and he's, and he's clearly in distress there. This is actually before this. Earlier in his ministry, he's distressed there as well too. Then in the Garden of Gethsemane, when he's praying hours before his death in Mark 14, 34 to 36, it says, and he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch, talking to his disciples. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. So these verses and and many others in the Bible that we don't have time to consult today show us the great distress of Jesus as he's anticipating the cross and what he's going to do on the cross in suffering and dying and facing rejection from God his Father all on our behalf. He's, He's anticipating this and having great distress and sorrow over it. But it also shows us that it's the will of God that it should happen as well. Going back to the Old Testament too, we see this in Isaiah 53.10, another prophecy about Jesus and specifically his sufferings in the Old Testament. It says, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. So with all of this considered, from Psalm 88's perspective in kind of a shadowy way, from Isaiah 53's perspective in a little bit more of an explicitly prophetic way, and very clear in the New Testament, as you lump it all together and see this thread kind of linked through Scripture, God planned the cross. And Jesus did as well. In John 10, it's clear, when Jesus is talking about himself as the good shepherd, he says, the good shepherd lays down his life, and he has authority to lay it down. And no one has authority to take it from him. He lays it down on his own accord, and he takes it up as well. He raises himself from the dead. So, It's God the Father and God the Son, the triune Godhead and God the Holy Spirit working together to bring this about. It's his will that Jesus, God the Son, go to the cross and be crushed and bear our sins, bear our transgressions, and uh, bear his wrath and abandonment as well. It also says, relatedly in the New Testament, that Jesus was, was, in fact, abandoned by his friends, specifically, and God, on the cross. Mark 14, 50 says, And they all left him. This is about all his disciples. They all left him and fled, very much like the psalmist was shunned by his friends. And in Luke 22, 56 to 57, speaking specifically about Jesus' probably closest confidant, closest friend, Peter, then a servant girl seeing Peter as he sat in the light and looking closely at him said, this man also was with Jesus, but he denied it, saying, woman, I do not know him. If there was ever anybody who would not deny Jesus, it would be Peter, in a worldly speaking sense, uh, but he did as well, more than once. Denied that he knew him. There, was, there wasn't a friend close to Jesus when he was going through all of this suffering and when, in fact, he was on the cross uh, specifically. Mark 15, 34 says, There was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. Just like the psalmist was surrounded by darkness and had a companion of darkness, so was Jesus, literally. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema sabachthani, which means, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This time quoting from Psalm 22. So, very much like Psalm 88, quoting from a, uh, David, David, a Davidic prayer, a prayer that King David prayed 
uh, in the Old Testament, Psalm 22, and saying, now this is like taking on a new form. This is the, now the prayer of Jesus. Like David was kind of forsaken by God in the Old Testament, or at least uh, predicting explicitly or directly Jesus' prayer in what he wrote. Now Jesus is kind of climaxing this. He's bringing this to its goal in saying these things on the cross, being rejected by friends, but also by God the Father as well. And additionally, as we see this theme build uh, on the cross, the Bible also says that he didn't just face God's rejection, the turning away of God the Father, but also faced his wrath too. Uh, So like the psalmist says in Psalm 88, your wrath lies heavy on me, so does God's wrath ultimately lie heavy on Jesus on the cross, so that it might be be deterred from those who believe. 1 John 4.10 is one of the many places we see this in the New Testament. It says, in this is love, and see love in this as well. John wants us to see that this particular angle on the cross is a very loving thing as well. Uh, not just a showing of a display of wrath, but a show a display of love. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And propitiation here refers to the removal of God's wrath by providing a substitute. That's what that word means. The removal of God's wrath from somebody by providing a substitute to take on that wrath. That's what Jesus was. He was the son of God who took God's wrath so that we would not have to. A propitiatory sacrifice. Also, uh, back in the psalm in verse 15, it's interesting. In Psalm 88, 15, uh, the word for terror is used there. Uh, and I'll just read Psalm 88, 15. It says, I, part of it, I suffer your terrors. This is another place where the psalmist is saying to God, I'm suffering your wrath, but also I'm suffering your terrors. It's the same Hebrew word used elsewhere in the Old Testament to refer to the dread which God sends upon his enemies. So Exodus 15, 16 says, Terror and dread fall upon them. This is speaking of the Egyptians, the enemies of God's people. Terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are still as stone till your people, O Lord, pass by, till the people pass by whom you have purchased. This is a fascinating, fascinating concept and something that many Christians go years without really fully getting yet. Because you can understand that Jesus died on the cross for your sins and you're saved through putting your faith in that. But as we grow and and deepen our knowledge of what happens on the cross, this is one of the major, major things that happened that we have to understand. That there's wrath that has to be removed from us. So Jesus, it says here, and it's inferred in how much it uh, points back to Exodus 15 and points ahead to things like 1 John 4.10. Jesus has become like an enemy of God in our place. He's become kind of like the Egyptians in Exodus 15, and he's become the forsaken one on the cross in our place so that we don't have to bear that. He's bore, he's bore God's wrath, he's bore God's terror, he's bore God's dread, and he's even bore the fact that God the Father turned his face away. And we see that on the cross. He cries out, my God, God the Father, why have you forsaken me? So he's even bearing the silence that we see embodied or prophesied about in Psalm 88. Jesus has become like an enemy of God so that the dread we are due for our sin would pass over us. Again, one of the major things that happened on the cross, and we learn from it from Psalm 88 beforehand in a shadowy way, and we see it fulfilled in the New Testament, this idea of the wrath being removed uh, from God's people. And also, this is the principle where, if some of you guys are familiar in the Old Testament, of the Passover lamb principle, back in, uh, in the story of Exodus, as the people of God, Israel, are preparing to leave and be delivered out from Egypt, one of the things that accompanies their exodus, their deliverance, their salvation, is a final plague, a plague of the firstborn, which God says, I'm going to send my angel over the land, 
and I'm going to kill all the firstborns of the land, all of them. And even you, my people, aren't uh, free from this plague unless you kill a lamb and take its blood and paste it over your door. And the Bible says, I will see the blood and I will pass over your house. And so the lamb's blood itself actually was the thing that God saw and his wrath or his anger or the plague itself, death, passed over their home and it went elsewhere to kill other firstborns. So that's why in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, in the New Testament, Paul says, Christ is our Passover lamb. He fulfills that idea. He deters wrath. He's the new lamb in an ultimate sense who sheds his blood, and through his blood, if we have faith in that, it's as if we're covered by it. God looks at it and says, I see the blood over you. I see my son's blood. You're covered by it. You're protected. Your sins are taken away. My wrath will go elsewhere. Uh, It's deterred from you. You're free. You You have no more punishment for sin. You're free. You're saved come out of the land, essentially, right? Like he's saying to Israel, come up out of Egypt. Now he's saying to us, come up out of the old land. Come back to me. You're saved. Uh, my wrath is deterred from you. No more judgment. No more, no more penalty for sin you have to pay. You are saved. And that's why the Bible says uh, to those who are still in their sins in the New Testament, John, actually Jesus says this in John 3.36. He says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. So the same principle is inferred here, right? The wrath of God's not over everybody because we're sinners and, we've, and we're separated from him. But to those who believe, that, that wrath is, is displaced. But to those who don't, the wrath of God remains. It stays over them. And the wrath of God is here in one sense, but the Bible also talks about how it's coming. And those who are not in Christ will face the wrath, but those who are in Christ, who are covered by that blood and who've been passed over, um, will be saved. So there are really two types of people in the world, and I think according to John 3, but of course elsewhere too uh, in the scriptures, we see this principle play out, even Old Testament, as it anticipates New Testament reality. There are two types of people in the world. Those who have God's wrath remain on them, and those who through belief have it pass over them through Christ, the great wrath deter of biblical history. So, uh, three things uh, to say to wrap this up. And actually, let me just read a a, a summative paragraph on what I think Psalm 88 is saying, what it means for us. And it's the the great question we can always ask, right, about any biblical text. What does it mean? What does it mean? What does it mean? I think it means this. Psalm 88 is both the prayer of a suffering worshiper, physically in history, waiting on the God of his salvation to allow or enable his distress to pass, And, more specifically, it's the prayer of Jesus in the garden and on the cross. The ultimate singer of this psalm who endured wrath, abandonment, and silence from God the Father and his friends on the cross so that through belief we would be saved from our sins and passed over by the wrath and the dread and the silence of God. It's one of the more sobering things then we can actually think about. This is Good Friday stuff, right? This is why we do Good Friday very dark, very candlelit, very sobering to remind us of that. It's very, very sorrowful to think about this uh, because that Jesus, our King, our God, had to go through this. But in another sense, it's very, very joy-giving and very freeing. This happened on the cross, and we we cannot deny it. We actually have to believe it. The Bible teaches it. Uh, But I think God wants us to for the sake of our growth and edification and our freedom. We really lived as though there's no more wrath on us presently, and there's not going to be any wrath in the future. It just blow our minds with joy on a regular basis. Um, This is the gospel. God does this for you. You don't do this for yourself. Uh, God gives the lamb, right? Just like he gave Israel the lamb in the Old Testament and said, here, this is how I'm providing you a way out from my wrath. 
I'm providing you a way out of judgment for your sin. Here, take it. Do it. Spread the blood over your door. It's the same way now in the New Testament. He's giving us Jesus, the lamb, and saying, believe. Spiritually, spread his blood over the doorpost of your life. Uh, constantly. That's what happens to a Christian when they believe. It's as if in the Old Testament, they take hyssop and dip it in the blood, and in a spiritual sense, they kind of paste it over their life. And they say, I'm, I'm bought, I'm redeemed, I'm purchased now by God. And I have no more, and that's secure. You, you never lose that in Christ. You never lose it. It's the good news of the gospel. By grace, you've been saved. And it's the love of God, like John is saying. These are sobering, hard things to understand. But John is saying this idea of wrath-deterring substitutionary sacrifice is the love of God. This is how he shows us your love. And actually, if you're here last week, we uh, looked at the um, parable of the prodigal son in Luke 15, which I won't go all over today. But um, in the story, it depicts God uh, as a, like a father who has lost his son to his rebelliousness. He's left his home. He's rebelled. He's squandered his father's property. He asked for his inheritance early so he could go spend it on prostitutes and all kinds of reckless living. But he realizes it's not the right way to live. He realizes he's sinned. He wants to go back and be saved from death and not perish. So he runs back to his father, but the Bible says, the father who is like God sees him from afar, runs and embraces him and kisses him and throws a party for him and clothes him. Uh, But what's not mentioned in that parable is the question of how can a just, perfect God embrace a sinner? Because we see plenty of places elsewhere in Scripture, God cannot be where sin is. Uh, In the Old Testament, when sinners enter God's presence, they're like vaporized. They die instantly. So how can the Father fully embrace? And I think that's what we start to see here. You see many other places in the Scripture too, but you see that answered here. God's able to embrace because wrath is deterred. Sin is placed upon a substitute, and it's not you. And because he dies, and he has wrath placed upon him, and he faces the silence of God, the forsakenness of God, the turning away of God, we don't have to. And belief in that aligns us with him, and we have new life through it. We have salvation through it. And so that's how God embraces us. That's the love of God. God loves you so much that he sent Jesus into the world to do this for you. This is what he does. And so I think on three levels, we have three things we can take from this, uh, and they're three different perspectives, really. There's a factual or prepositional level, and that is this teaches us something about what happened on the cross. It deepens our knowledge about it. Psalm 88 does. From this vantage point in biblical history, looking ahead, to the prayer of Jesus on the cross. On an evangelistic level, this is why I think people need to believe in Jesus. For the first or thousandth time, wrath remains, like Jesus himself says in John 3, wrath remains on those who are outside of Christ. They need faith in a wrath-deterring act of love that Jesus enacted on the cross. There's a lot of people out there who would look at this concept of uh, wrath deterrence uh, and say it's uh, things like divine child abuse. It's not true. It's just weird. Why would God send his son uh, to, to bear his own wrath? It just seems kind of strange uh, that the triune God would, would do that. Um, but it's not. It's not in the first case because it's all God. If Jesus was just a man, you, you can kind of see their point. But because it's God and because Jesus wants to go, it's not divine child abuse. This is the love of God. Jesus is willingly going to the cross, willingly. It's part of his plan as well through his love to be that wrath-deterring substitutionary sacrifice like the Lamb of God in the Old Testament uh, to, to express that love and to save those who believe through it. So it's very, very, very biblical, thoroughly, in the shadows of the Old Testament, the prophecies and the realities too, like 1 John 4.10 in the New Testament. So on an evangelistic level, we have to... This is why when we evangelize people, we, we start with the cross. You know, we don't start with some obscure passage in Genesis 30. We start with the cross because knowledge in the cross or knowledge in this type of principle 
is what saves somebody. Um, and then it's found out later by the person that, oh, all of Scripture is about that. Genesis 30 and Psalm 88 and Isaiah 53 and um, Exodus 15, they're, they're all setting the stage for Jesus and the revealing of, this, revealing of this ultimate Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, like John the Baptist says in John 1.29. The Lamb of God who takes away my sin and the sins of the world. He does that by being this type of Lamb, this wrath-absorbing type, uh, type Savior on the cross. So on a factual level, we learn something. On an evangelistic level, this is why people have to believe because wrath remains on them. They need that wrath-deterring act of love. And then simply on a devotional level, I think that this should give us great sorrow, like I mentioned before, and great happiness at the same time. Great sorrow in what Jesus went through, but great joy, and that he did it as a propitiatory, wrath-deterring sacrifice for sins. So, you know, as you pick up your Bible and, and read these kinds of things, like Psalm 88, uh, again, it's not wrong or bad to see your own experiences in these types of things. That's okay. But I would say that it's incomplete uh, to stop there. We have to see Jesus in, in, in the psalm. He's being referenced. He's being referred to. The stage is being set for him. And this is ultimately his prayer. So much more important than thinking about yourself when you read Psalm 88 is thinking about Jesus, how he prayed this spiritually, essentially, in his life, in the garden, and on the cross, how he fulfilled it, and what he did for you then, what it means, what the cross means. He didn't just die as a martyr. He didn't just die randomly. The cross did something, and the Bible tells us this. It accomplished something, a great salvation. And this is how. This is how God can embrace ruined sinners uh, because Jesus went through all of this for us. So, um, so think about Jesus, how he fulfilled it, and what he did for you in dying on the cross for your sins. So we can say with uh, Richard Belcher, who comments um, on this psalm, in his book, The Messiah and the Psalms, and says, our prayer then at the end of the day, unlike the psalmist, so we can see a contrast here as well, our prayer, unlike the psalmist, is not ultimately darkness is my closest friend, like Psalm 88, 15, but Jesus, friend of sinners, in Luke 7, 34. With that, let's pray. God, thank you, Lord, for your grace. Thank you for your salvation in the gospel. Thank you that the image of it we have in Psalm 88 uh, thank you for the prayer of Christ that talks about wrath and the silence of his friends and uh, of God the Father, uh, all fulfilled by Jesus. Thank you that it tells us what the cross meant. You didn't just leave us to guess. Uh, you came to the cross, uh, you died on the cross, and you also told us what that did. It accomplished something. Um, and so we thank you that uh, one of the things that did is it took away punishment for sin. Um, amazing prayer. We can read this prayer and say, this is what Jesus prayed. This is what he did for me. What amazing love, amazing love, incredible love an incredible act of salvation, uh, that God would become a man in flesh, suffer this way, be tormented physically, spiritually, and emotionally in many and various ways on the cross uh, and face that and bear that penalty for sin because he was human, uh, but also fully God. And so he could take that for the whole world and it meant something salvific. And so um, thank you for Jesus, the King of kings and Lord of lords, the Savior of our souls, who prayed this in the ultimate sense. Uh, we bend the knee to him our Savior, our propitiatory sacrifice, our Lamb of God, our wrath deter, our Savior, who is also our God. In Jesus' name.